There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. People can change anything they want to. And that means everything in the world. Show me any country and there'll be people in it. It's time to take the humanity back into the center of the ring and follow that for a time. You know, think on that. Without people, you're nothing. Without people, you're nothing. Stoke the fire. All right, we're back. Jesse Leach, Matt Stock, Stoke the fire. Pull up a log. Welcome to the show. How you doing, dude? Yeah, good. You? I'm all right. I'm noticing a bit of Fred Perry action today, which is always good to see. Yeah, I dusted off my my old Perry's. It's a, I love this color too. It's a nice blue. It's yeah, popping. Got, it's just electric blue. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> we we bonded pretty early on over our mutual love of skinhead culture and Fred Perry shirts. And yeah, it's it's been a while since I've dusted out mine, but now I've seen that. Next time, I'm going to Fred it too. I haven't yeah, got a shirt like that though. I've only got the polos. I've just got a yeah. few different colors of them. But you got a proper shirt. I, yeah, I got a couple of these. I I wear them every once in a while because you know they're. Fairly expensive shirts. <laughs> yeah, you dust them off for special occasions like today. And today is going to be, I can already tell, a deep, profound, enlightening and inspiring and probably quite moving conversation as well. Bradley Hart is a listener from Vancouver, Canada, who reached out to us via the Stoke the Fire email address, which is stokethefirepod at gmail.com. You can do the same if you want to ask us questions, if you want to suggest guests, if you want to share your story like Bradley's done. So I'm going to read out his email and then we're going to get him on the show and we're just going to talk about everything this guy's been through and overcome. Um, It's really quite amazing. So he says this. Hi, Jesse and Matt. I just wanted to share my story with you guys in the hope that we could elaborate on the struggles of mental health and addiction. My mum took good care of us as a single mum, but when I was 10, she got into a physical altercation with my brother and we ended up getting separated. That's around the time I started to explore metal music because it got me out of my head. It worked for a while and I even picked up a guitar after my mum and dad got me one for my 12th birthday. But I quickly realised those thoughts and feelings in my head wouldn't go away with just music, which led me to alcohol and weed. That instantly made me feel different. I felt alive for the first time, like I'd finally been accepted. It's only in retrospect that I see that the people around me promoting this behavior were not good for me, but at the time, I felt truly accepted, and, well, I soon delved into harder drugs, and my life quickly fell apart. I started using opioids and ended up homeless, and then I ended up going to jail just to survive. Um, It was actually Killswitch's last two records, Incarnate and Disarm the Descent, that would be my saving grace. I would turn to these two records and blast them and scream along until the anger had melted away. This was a rinse and repeat cycle until March 2019. I was facing some hefty federal charges and I knew in my soul I'd accepted defeat of my fate. But at the same time, a glimmer of hope came in the way of a a second chance from a prosecutor who gave me the option to try and get clean off the drugs and go into recovery. 
At this point, I would do anything to have a better life. I had to come to terms with my addiction, and I finally said enough was enough. I'd overdosed over 150 times from fentanyl by this point. Wow. Um, I had one small slip since then, but on the whole, my life has been infinitely better, and I've made the decision to do right by me. I've obtained a career beyond my wildest dreams, where I run a team of outreach workers in downtown Eastside, Vancouver, and I've been able to dive back into music with the release of my new EP in July. Uh, I just wanted to share my story um, and, and tell everybody else out there that it's not too late if you want to ask for help. Sincerely, Bradley Hart. What a beautiful and powerful email. Um, so without further ado, Jesse, why don't you bring yeah. Bradley onto the show? Yeah, Bradley, come on, man. Come on. on. That's a yeah, that's an extraordinary story, man. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you for guys sharing for... that with us. Uh, thank you for uh, having me on the show. It's uh, it's really a dream come true to be able to talk to both of you. So this is this is good. Um, where do you guys want to start? I guess we should start with where things in your memory began to go south. Um, okay. If there's sure. a moment or a period in time or an event, yeah, let's let's begin there and then trace the I guess the immediate incidences that then you know led to perhaps where you found yourself using alcohol and weed in a particularly negative way definitely okay so uh let's start out uh so i was born and raised in uh surrey british columbia uh it was kind of uh back then uh so i'm 32 uh back then it was like the early 90s uh the crack had just started to really hit the streets over here uh everybody was doing it um obviously i grew up around the lifestyle because my mom was with some bikers all the time and like everyone around me was pretty much involved with it right and i didn't know it at the time and so i got a little bit older and started seeing the signs of oh these people are doing this my mom's bringing me to weird places right so i was like okay this is kind of weird anyway um so my brother my mom and i uh my dad separated from us a long time ago uh he wasn't in the picture uh we uh so me my brother my mom and myself, we all moved into a new house. I think I was uh, 12 or 11 or 10. Yeah, I was 10 at the time. And literally within the first week, um, my brother and my mom got into a really bad fight. And I was involved with it. My brother last showed at me on his way out of the house. Uh, and he, it was, it was really bad. He ended up moving in with my dad. And that was the year I was starting grade eight. And that it was like two weeks before school started. And I hopped into really bad behaviors right away. Uh, I started skipping school right away. Um, I ended up meeting up with friends that I moved away from. They actually moved and started at that school too. It was kind of, it was weird, but I, we started hanging out and then uh, they're like, oh, you should, you should come smoke weed with us. I was like, okay, cool. So I don't have to go home and deal with all these emotions that I'm feeling surrounding you know, my mom and my brother, and like, obviously I was angry towards him. And this was my way of not necessarily lashing out, but rebelling. You know what I mean? I would come home. I was all, you know, I was all stoned. My mom would be like, where have you been? Blah, blah, blah. And it just like, it was, it was good for me at the time. Well, it wasn't good, but it gave me a sense of, oh, she can't tell me what to do. Even if I go to school the next day, I can go do it again and she'll get pissed off at me. So let's do it. I was rebelling. I didn't know better. Obviously, when we're all at that age, none of us know better. We all do crazy stuff. Mm. Um, 
to push forward a little bit, uh, I, I didn't go to school anymore. Uh, I was recommended to go to this, um, it was like a summer school essentially, or so I was told. And it was actually a really good thing. It was a performing arts school for at-risk youth. Uh, and I, I excelled as that was my first time ever really performing on stage too, because we did like, there was like a, a musical and like a stage performance at the end of the summer that we all were performing and practicing and getting used to and being able to perform in front of our parents, uh, many other people who was in, uh, on a stage that's pretty well known here. It's the Michael J. Fox stage. Uh, so it was, you say it was, performance, are you talking guitar, like those guitars behind? No, you? no, it, it was like a, a, a planned out theatrical performance. It was a play okay. essentially, but with musical numbers as well. I, I was involved with one of the musical numbers. I was a, a football player and we did like a little a rap thing that uh, the writers wrote out. It was pretty cool. And I, I, I enjoyed it because it was like, oh, the spotlight's on me and I'm doing well for once in my entire life, right? Or up to that point. And it was cool. And so... At that point, uh, it was, I think it was just after that, uh, I went into foster care because I had a blow up with my mom during this point in time. And uh, they offered me, so they have like a, a foster care program of their own. They offered it to me and I said, yes. My mom said, yes. The foster system said, yes, here. So I went and I lasted about a month and I ran away. I just, I couldn't handle being apart from my mom. Uh, and then I went back and then I tried to go back to school, didn't work out. And then I started getting into harder drugs like ecstasy, drinking a lot, smoking weed. And at the point in time, and then people out that were around me were all my old friends that I moved away from. And I didn't know at the time that it wasn't good for me uh, at all. And it was if it made me feel good. Were, that, were they me... older than you, Bradley, or were they the same age? Uh, a couple of them were a little bit older. And so at that point in time, I was, I think I was 13. Uh, and most, most of the people that were around me were older, like my brother's friends and stuff like that, or people that I met along the way in high school or my adventures around high school, because I didn't really go. Um, yeah, uh, it was, uh, it was a crazy time for sure. But, uh, I, so I started to get into like ecstasy drinking heavily. Uh, and that's around the time I started going to like local shows, punk shows, everyone else is drinking, everyone else is having a good time. This is cool. I want to. I want to do this too. Uh, and so I kept getting in more and more with that crowd. And I didn't realize the more and more I got into it, the worse and worse my life was becoming. But I just didn't. I failed to see it because I was young and naive, right? Um, yeah, it was. It, it's been. And then eventually, after that, my mom had enough of me after I ran away, and my dad was like, "Well, you can move here if you want, but like, I'm my dad's a truck driver. He's never home." or he wasn't for, you know, so it was just me in an apartment by myself for a long time. And it just, I, I rebelled and it's just, it was just like so stuck in my DNA that, well, not in my DNA, but in my head, I should say that it was just like doing these things were fun. They were starting to, my mind was like telling me that they were fun. And obviously they were fun at the time, but any other person would have seen that behavior. It's like, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so moving forward, I tried to go back to school again. Didn't happen. I tried to go to school out, my, out by my dad's. It didn't happen. Um, eventually, I started getting into like psychedelic drugs. And it, it, like, don't get me wrong. I'm not taking away from anybody's experience with psychedelic drugs. So, like, I've been on Vision Quest. That's fine. Uh, but at the time, like when I was going through this, like this was fun. It's a new thing. 
I'm tripping out. My buddy's tripping out. My buddy's like, hey, let's go uh, take your mom's van and drive to Calgary. I'm like, oh, okay. That seems like a good idea. I'm really high on acid, uh, not knowing what's going on. <laughs> uh, and, you're how old, and you're how old at this point? Uh, I'm 16 at this point. Right. So you are legally old enough to drive, but you're just not uh, in a legal state of mind. <laughs> not, not I, I didn't have a license either. So there's that. <laughs> uh, so we, we decided to take my mom's van. We had, a, uh, it was a 98 Ford Windstar. It had a half a, half a tank of gas. And we had maybe 10 or $15 on us, thinking this was a good idea. We ran out of gas like two hours out of Vancouver. Uh, we ended up stalling on the side of the highway going to Calgary. Uh, <laughs> oh, there's my cat. Sorry. <laughs> um, Don't we, apologize we, for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, we stalled out on the highway. Uh, I ended up, or oh, was it me that did it? Or, yeah, I ended up... Uh, flagging down an off-duty uh, RCMP officer. I didn't know it at the time. And he's like, no, I can't help you. I don't have any gas. Because we were trying to get gas or money for gas, right? And uh, I, I go down to this little rafting place. This is like a river. We're up on the highway. It's like this uh, a cabin, cottage, but it's also a river rafting thing. I go down there, see if they have gas. They don't. They see this young guy coming in, obviously in distress, who the heck is this guy? They call the police too. And by the time I got back up the hills of the van, there was four cop cars. Uh, this is when I got arrested for the first time. Uh, also high on acid, mind you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I get arrested. Uh, my mom doesn't come and pick me up. It's, it's my friend's mom that came and picked us up. And my mom was like, not having anything with me because she had to, because the van got uh towed to the police station and this is probably yeah two and a half three hours outside of vancouver so she had to take a greyhound bus to the rcmp station just to to pick up her van she wasn't excited with me at all uh at this point uh, i was i was charged uh with a couple of things like some theft charges uh, but i was still underage right so uh, it went to court. Uh, we had to go back up there a couple times to court. And then we came back. It got, eventually got sent to my hometown so we could deal with it there. I got sentenced to some probation. And then it's like, okay, well, part of your probation is you have to go back to school. And so they're like, you can go to the school in Langley. And it's just outside of Vancouver. It's like a suburb of Vancouver. And so I did. And uh, a week after that, my mom kicked me out because she was down with me. And I had moved back in with my dad. Uh, and I actually had a point in time where it wasn't too bad because I moved in with my dad. Uh, my dad was remarried at the point in time. So he wasn't as stressed out as he used to be. Uh, he wasn't working as much and things were good. I got into, you know, I, I, I got into a job finally for a little bit. Uh, I was actually going to school, whereas I never went to school. So I literally had to start at 17 from grade eight. And it was, it was, it, but I was focused at that point because I wasn't fixated on like, who I'm going to hang out with, what I'm going to do, because I'm rebelling. It was like, okay, maybe I can do some things for myself here. Because I started to realize that nothing's going to get better until I make it better, right? Mm -hmm. So I started going to school, and I started doing really well. I ended up staying, and I finished uh, my grade 12 in three and a half, uh, two and a half years there. And I was, I was like, just before uh, my graduation, actually, uh, I was working as uh, I injured myself at work, uh, I was working in like a metal fabrication plant and I, I slipped a disc in my back 
and I did I could I didn't realize it when I was working at the time but after work I could feel it like when I was walking home and it just hurt so much so I went to the clinic uh the doc said how to do it I injured myself at work so he said okay you're gonna take some time off uh he gave me filled all the forms and he prescribed me uh uh some non uh non-narcotic uh, drugs for the back pain right I was like okay cool uh this and I took it it didn't work and it started hurting more and more as the days went on. And my friend's like, here, why don't you try this? And he offered me some heroin. And at that point, I was like, anything to take this pain away. And as soon as I did it, it was like, I, I, like, I, don't, I don't even know how to explain how heroin feels. It's like, it's like a warm hug after a long day, uh, uh, after a 12-hour day of work. You just want to lay at home with your partner in bed, watch movies and go to sleep. That kind of like euphoria factor is like, but it's, it's multiplied tenfold for sure. Can I ask uh, how, how you did that? Cause I'm, I'm familiar with the uh, uh, heroin. I've actually done it once myself when I was younger. Cause I used to do a ton of drugs when I was a kid. Uh, how did you do the heroin? How was it? How uh, so I, I initially um, had tried it once before that and I smoked it, but then uh it was just like the way they were, they were, they were shooting it. Right. Uh, and I, I was like, okay, let's, let's try this. They did it for me. And it was, yeah, it was bad. <laughs> so initially, so initially you're doing this just for your back pain or was there a part of you too, that was kind of into the idea of getting lost again in your own mind? Uh, at that point it was just for back pain. Cause like, I, I didn't want to like, uh, like my past experiences before that I hadn't really, I hadn't really hit like a, a bottom where, my drug use had put me into the point or that I seen anyway of like being a health scare. And I knew from my mom being a nurse and her getting injured that opiates helped her at the time. Right. And she told me all about it. She's very informative about like what medications she was on and stuff like that. She was a nurse for 17 years in the emergency department in Surrey. And uh, she'd always warned me about the dangers, but I, at this point, I had uh, all rational thinking had gone out the window and I, I, they offered it to me in a syringe and I decided to take it. And it was, yeah, it was really bad. And from that um, first time you were like, this is for me. You, you yeah, felt you were like, yeah. Yeah. I, that first time I was just like, Hey, this is working for me. And I'm able to walk without being in pain every three seconds so i'm gonna continue to use this because it's working and it worked for a while like that whole summer i was off uh, off of work on workers compensation they were paying me like 90 percent of my wage so i was getting a check in the mail every two weeks for like a thousand bucks and i paid like 200 bucks rent to my dad and bills so i had a lot of money every couple of weeks and all my the people i started hanging out with that were doing it they all had money i lived in like not like a rich part of town but like a you know, a lot of the people I was hanging out with did have money. And my life spiraled very quickly after that. Um, it was to the point of where my dad, uh, so what happened initially is I was, um, I was, it was a summer day. It was just before September, it was in August. And uh, WCB had called me and they're like, we need to get a medical check on you just to reconfirm so we can get your payments forwarded to you still uh, we're just waiting for uh some information from your doctor and i'm like okay fuck what do i do um so this is when i i, I took my guitar at the time i went and pawned it and i got some money 
I went and scored. I went home. I went and used in the washroom. And then I went and laid out on the couch because my stepmom was watching TV. And not 10 seconds later, I overdosed for the first time. And keep in mind, this is in 2007. So fentanyl wasn't even a thing at this point. Uh, I overdosed. Uh, she uh, has severe anxiety. Uh, and she didn't know what to do. She called, she, thank God she called the ambulance. Uh, they came, I went to the hospital. I told, and I was over 18 at the point and I told the doctor, I'm like, don't tell my parents what happened. Like I'll tell you, but I can't, I, I don't, I'm not ready to tell them. And so they just, they, I don't even know what the doctor told my mom and dad, but they both came to see me. Uh, my dad went through my things as a parent would do. Uh, and he found all my paraphernalia. And he's like, okay, let's, let's, let's try and make this work. So we go home. Uh, I go to, we find this treatment center for me to go to. Uh, and it was a, a faith-based treatment center. Uh, I wasn't ready for that because of my past experiences with uh, faith and the, the people around it. Um, we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, and it wasn't for me. I wasn't having it. I, I left the next day. Uh, and then I came home and my dad's like, if you're not going to be in treatment, you can't be here. Right. And so I took that as a sign to go. Uh, I tried to go back to my mom's house for a little bit. Uh, and that escalated quickly because she had a new uh, partner as well. And uh, he, they were both very drunk all the time. My mom's an alcoholic. Um, and I got kicked out of there very quickly. So I turned to the streets. Um, was and, there a uh, moment after you overdosed that you had any fear of death or did it, it, did it not sort of occur to you that you were in deep shit or were you just kind of like, ah, it is what it is. What was your at, at that point? It was like, ah, it is what it is. You know what I mean? I'm alive. This is, you know, like I didn't die and it wasn't that like, I felt like I was immune to anything. I just didn't know like the severity of what an overdose could look like and that I could potentially die from it. Um, yeah, it was, yeah, I, I saw, uh, yeah, after that, uh, I moved, I eventually just went to the streets. I tried it out on the streets for a bit and, uh, it didn't pan out too well for me. Uh, I ended up going into recovery for a little bit. This is, so this is, uh, 2012, I think I was 20, 23 or 24, I think, uh, roughly. Uh, and I went into recovery for the first time. So I went to what's called the recovery house. Uh, they're, uh, 12 step based. And I did, I did okay for the first little bit. I was on, I was there. I think I got clean for just under uh, 60 days. Uh, and, but then I was like, I, I'm not having it. And my mind was telling me things like, oh, maybe using on the street will be better. And it definitely wasn't. Um, from there, it was just like a rinse and repeat cycle of on the street, off the street, uh, with my mom, not with my mom. Uh, she, you know what I mean? Like it was a bad situation. We were very codependent upon each other. Uh, she got really sick. Uh, she ended up getting, uh, a stage two pancreatic cancer. So I actually ended up staying home for a little while and taking care of her, uh, trying to get my life back together. Uh, it didn't work out because I would, I was on uh, government assistance at that point. And I was using every time I would get paid, uh, I would take all of the money that I got and blow it in a couple of days and then leave and come back a week later because I knew my mom needed my help, but I was leaving for a week and she needed my help then. But I just, I was so stuck in the, I need to get my next fix. How am I going to make this work? Where can I get money from? 
that that didn't even occur to me. They weren't even, it wasn't even a thought process in my head. Well, it's a sickness really, you know, it's that, and I think that's the bottom line with all addiction, you know, and I, I found in my experience and, and from talking to people um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, a lot of addiction comes from a, a feeling of disconnection. Like sometimes people who are addicts just need some sort of connection. And if your mom's an alcoholic and your, your dad is kind of like half there for you and half not, you're just striving. You need someone to be there to give you some sort of like grounding. And I, you know, I can't even imagine because, you know, when I did heroin, I, I just was scared by it. It scared the shit out of me as a kid, um, that disconnection you feel. But you're right. There is sort of a warm hug feeling you get from it as well. But crazy, man, from a young age, you've, you've gone through a lot at this point from what you've told us. Um, so do you think now looking back just to touch base with you, do you think that you could see that there was a lack of, of connection with people that maybe you just felt like you needed to, you needed something, somebody to be there for you, to help you. Cause it seems like you're navigating a good deal of this on your own. Yeah. Um, and not, not to take away from like, uh, uh, people going to therapy, but I went to therapy when I was a kid and it just didn't work for me. I don't know, uh, why, uh, and I don't know, it, it should have, you know, by all rights, but it didn't. And I did, you're right. I did feel a lack of uh, connection with more people. Uh, a lot of that, I think my, my mindset around it was based on me going through elementary school and high school and being bullied a lot, uh, being bullied by my brother and his older friends, me getting into physical altercations with my brother all the time. Uh, and it's just like, I got this overwhelming feeling of like, I'm not good enough. Uh, I'm not good enough. I'm not worth it. Who cares? Nobody cares about me anyway. So I'm going to just go about my way. And looking back, I really, you're right. I, I, I see that like I didn't have a connection. I may have like family connections, but I never had anything that was worthwhile. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, like I, I had been in a couple of bands and it was fun, but I was, I didn't have, like there wasn't any reason behind it. It was just for fun and it ended up falling apart too. Right. Um, so let's, let's get into a little bit more about like the recent stuff. Uh, Cause we're pretty much at that point. Um, so I left, uh, my mom kicked me out and this was like the final time she kicked me out. She was like, I'm done. Like go away. Never come back. If you call back, if you come back, I'm calling the police and I'll have you removed from the area. And at that point, it's like, okay, I'll just go back to the streets. Why not? Uh, I ended up going down. So uh, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of like backstory on the bank, downtown east side of Vancouver. Uh, the downtown east side of Vancouver, British Columbia, is probably one of the poorest postal codes in Canada. Uh, a very marginalized and uh, stigmatized population. And with that being said, there's a lot of uh, drug dealing, drug use, uh, gang violence, gang activity. Uh, and that was the only place that I could figure I could call not home, but a safe haven because the people I knew were the people I had been growing up with and using with, and they were all there and they accepted, accepted me with open arms, we'll say, but it definitely wasn't. Um, so yeah, I ended up coming downtown. Um, I ended up, uh, hooking up with a couple of people really quickly. Uh, I started, uh, you know, I, 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 I've been to jail for this already and I've done my time, so I'm not afraid to say it. Uh, I started selling drugs. Um, 
very quickly. Uh, but I also I had a, so I started selling drugs to these guys. Everything was going really well. Uh, I ended up going to jail though because I, I my mom would let me drive her truck uh, to go pick her up alcohol because she couldn't get out of bed without it. And I ended up picking up a driving charge from that, and that leaked over into this because uh, the cops eventually came to where we were had everything at. Um, they pried our door open got everyone's names and I was the only guy that went to jail that day because I had a, a warrant for a traffic, uh, traffic crime. Right. Um, I, I go to jail, I come out. It's literally like rinse and repeat. Like I can't, I'd get out. I would use, I'd start selling drugs again. Uh, this was just before fentanyl hit too. And this is like 2014 and come the winter 2015 is when fentanyl started coming on the streets because there was no heroin coming from wherever it was coming from right and people are like oh this is a new thing it's super strong but people started dropping left right and center and uh eventually it became more prevalent and then there was no heroin coming into the city and it was all fentanyl and that's when the government of british columbia decided to call a a uh, state of emergency and that state of emergency is still active today uh for uh, uh the, the use of fentanyl or just the fentanyl in, in, in the public. Uh, I think the first year that it really hit here, uh, it killed 1,700 people in BC alone. Oh. And that was yeah. a pandemic in and of itself, wasn't it? When, yeah, it, when... it is. And uh, yeah, it, it killed, I think it was like 1,600 people that year alone. And a lot of them were my friends. And it's just like devastating. And I, I, at that point, the only like really lost I'd felt was uh, my, my grandma passed away, uh, I think like four years before that. And my, my aunt passed away. And so I never really dealt with grief at all. And it was all new to me. But at the same time, I was, you know, flying high on, on um, methamphetamine and, and her and opiates, right? So it didn't really phase me until more people started dying. And I was like, wow, these people are dying. And then all of a sudden our supplier changed and we started selling fentanyl and I, I obviously I used the product that I sold, which is a, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's against Biggie Smalls, uh, 10 crack commandments, never get high on your own supply. Right. I disobeyed that every time. And it was to my uh, dismay, unfortunately. Uh, I remember the first time, that I overdosed after, uh, like on fentanyl, I should say, uh, I was in, uh, I, so, uh, in Vancouver, in the downtown east side, we have uh, safe injection sites. Okay. So there's, there's a few of them now, but at that point there was only one and it's called insight. And what you're able to do there is you're able to, you register yourself. You have to be over 18. There's like, there's no if, ands or buts, or I think it's over 19. Uh, no if, ands or buts about it. You tell them what kind of drugs you do. And they have like, I think it's uh, 15 booths and they have uh, medical staff on site. Uh, so if you do overdose, they can help you. And, you know, you can get out of it. Right. So uh, I remember the first time I overdosed there and I didn't even see it coming. It's just like I used, I felt that warmth that I always feel, but then it got really intense. And then next thing I know, I'm waking up on my back with a tube down my throat and oxygen being fed to me. I'm like, what the fuck happened? Right. Like you overdosed. And I was like, and it was just like a new thing to me. I was like, okay, uh, this sucks. The ambulance is on the way. Do you want to go to the hospital? I was like, okay, I'll go to the hospital. And uh, apparently they'd be dealing with this a lot. 
uh, as of recent, because that's when fentanyl started coming out. And I stayed. They're like, okay, you're good to go after a couple hours just to make sure uh, the fentanyl not necessarily worn off, but it wasn't as prevalent. And what narc, uh, there's a drug, uh, and I don't know if you guys are aware of it, it's called uh, naloxone. And what naloxone does is it reverses opioid overdoses. So it basically blocks out, think of it like uh, you're at a club and uh, the bar is your, uh, your brain and the opiate receptors and all the people going to the bar is uh, the opioids, right? Uh, it's, and they start getting really rowdy. And so the bouncer with Narcan, comes in and clears all that out and make sure everybody leaves so nothing reacts to the opioid receptors anymore. And uh, so, yeah, and they, they kind of explained that a little bit to me. I think, okay, cool. So I leave and I OD the next day and I go to the hospital again. And then a couple of days later, I OD again. And then I, I try, I start, I eventually at this point, I'd stopped selling drugs and I was starting to do like uh, property crime to feed my habit. And it was working for me. Obviously, I, I don't condone it. Uh, what I was doing was in order for me to survive at the time. And I did a lot of really bad things to a lot of innocent people. And I didn't, it wasn't violent. It wasn't anything like that. It's just like I was invading people, people's spaces and it's not right. And I've done a lot of time for that and it's not good. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I start doing small property crime, like breaking into cars, stuff like that to get money for, for, for drugs. But then I'd get money, I'd come back, I'd buy the drugs and then I'd overdose. And it's like constantly. And I think that's it's almost- the, That's the thing with fentanyl though, right? I mean, fentanyl is one of the most- uh, overdose drugs because you can't really it's hard to gauge that from what i hear like when people coming from heroin into fentanyl it's a completely different beast you you can't really gauge whereas heroin i, I you know from what i've heard from friends of mine you can sort of measure it out better where with fentanyl you, you're kind of rolling the dice every time right mm -hmm. yeah and that's the thing too is like at that point uh people are like oh uh I, I think a couple chemists from a local university started interacting with a couple of uh people down here and then it started getting shipped from overseas and people are trying to make it into a point of where people can do it and they don't know how to mix it because they don't know what they're doing mm -hmm. and there's like it's like some days it'd be okay and then like uh during like the week of we call uh welfare week because so people get checks all week that week from the government uh people would just start dropping and people would start dying and it's just like it's Every time you do it, it's like playing Russian roulette, right? It is. It really is. And you know what? You can build up your tolerance all you want. But if somebody decides to up the percentage of the amount of fentanyl they're putting in, you're very much going to die the next batch. Can I just ask you this quickly, Bradley, as well? And I mean, no disrespect at all, but, you know, is there any part of your brain, obviously, it, you know, you're seeped in addiction, but is there any part of your brain at any point that's seeing the pattern of take overdose take that steps in and goes this is absolutely absurd this is dangerous this is ridiculous i need to stop or is it just a path that you're on and there's no coming off it at that point there was no rational thinking uh it was oh people will bring me back from this as long as i'm not using alone so i'm just gonna keep going you know what i mean like uh and then eventually like you'd find like a stable person with the same uh same supply and the same strength supply and then you start using more and more and then that person goes to jail or something and then you go to somebody else and then you use you think you can use the same amount but you can't because then you do that and then you overdose and yeah 
uh, there's been a few times when I've overdosed that has been kind of scary. And uh, one, one of the times specifically, uh, I was literally in an alley in Vancouver. Uh, I don't even remember using, I remember waking up to the uh, AED on my, like my, uh, my chest and my side. Uh, I was literally shirtless in a puddle in an alleyway. Um, with the EMTs uh, resuscitating me and they successfully brought me back. So I'm still here. <laughs> uh, and a couple other times that were just as bad. And like, sometimes the, the drugs are so strong that six or seven shots of Narcan aren't going to work. And it's, you know what I mean? Like people are playing, it's not only the people buying the drugs, but it's also the people making the drugs that are playing Russian roulette. Cause you don't know, they don't know if someone's going to die from their supply. You know what I mean? It's, it's ruthless. Um, uh, so like, like I said, at the same time, I'm going back and forth in a jail, but each time I go back to jail, the stints get a little bit longer because this government's starting to get fed up with me doing these crimes. They're like, hey, um, this isn't good. You know, uh, this is not good. And it's just back. I was living in uh, what's called a um, an SRO. And what they've done in Vancouver is they've repurposed all the old, old hotels into low-income uh, housing for uh, people that are in addictions, mental health, uh, that just have nowhere else to go. And I was offered a place. I went, uh, and then it's just like, it's just a rinse and repeat cycle, honestly. Uh, and then it, it will come up to about 2018. Um, I had a partner at the time, uh, you know, uh, things are going kind of well, cause I actually have a girlfriend now. I hadn't had a girlfriend in a long time. Uh, things are going good. Uh, I end up, so at this point, I'm, I started selling drugs again. I'm working with the guy that was across the hall from me. And he's like, hey, can you put this uh, assault rifle in your room? I was like, oh, uh, I guess. Uh, so I put it in my room. I, like, I hid it away. And not two days later, uh, a SWAT team comes and kicks my door in. And it was for not even related to the rifle at all. It was because of some crimes I did uh, a few months previous. Um, they kicked my door in. I throw the gun out the window. Uh, and they pull me out. They beat the crap out of me, like, really badly inside, like, right in front of my door. My girlfriend's screaming at them. I was like, stop beating him up. And it's like, what are you going to do about it? That's what I heard one of them say. They bring me out. They take me in. Uh, and then the two detectives that were part of the investigation, they're like, well, we found your assault rifle. And uh, I basically admitted to having it. And they're like, okay, we're going to release you, but we're going to be investigating you for the next year. And so they released me. I was, uh, my life just started spiraling downhill. I found out that I had a daughter uh, that uh, I had no idea about. And I still have, I've met her maybe a couple of times today. I haven't even had the chance to be a father yet to her. Um, so I get investigated for a whole year. This is coming up to March, 2019. The warrant finally comes out. Uh, and I was on the street actually uh, in the morning trying to find drugs. And they're like, okay, uh, yeah, you have a Canada wide warrant for your arrest. I'm like, what? And I totally forgot about it. And they picked me up, brought me in. I got released on bail, uh, but I had like a 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. curfew, all these crazy stipulations. 
uh, and I fucked that up right away. I got picked up right away. Uh, and, and this is and this was like where I was in the email. Uh, this was at the point where I had accepted defeat. You know what I mean? I had accepted defeat. I was like, okay, I'm. And this was before the prosecutor gave me a chance. He's like, I was like, accepted defeat. I'm probably going to go to the penitentiary for a very long time. Uh, Do you have any relationship with your brother, mum, or dad at this point? Uh, Oh, I'll, I'll get into that once I finish this part, for sure. Um, I accepted defeat. I'm going to the pen. Uh, I was talking to a couple of people I knew on the same unit I was in jail. They're like, yeah, man, they, they, they ask generally just for the gun alone at least seven years, right? Uh, and I had a couple of break and enter charges that were coupled with the charges that I had. And uh, so I go to back and forth to uh, court a couple of times because uh, I had to change lawyers because I, I had a co-accused who also had the same lawyer, so the conflict of interest. Uh, we moved on, uh, and he. But the thing is, he didn't necessarily go away. He found me another lawyer and helped that lawyer with my case, and it was really cool. Uh, and I go, I go to, uh, I come back from court. I remember it was, uh, it was a Friday. Uh, I talked to my dad on the Saturday on the phone because he always answered my calls no matter what. Um, and then on Sunday. Uh, I was, I was, I was, I wasn't double bunked or anything. Usually you're double bunked uh, at this jailhouse, but I wasn't. And it's like a Sunday, I think it was like 11 or 12 uh, in the afternoon. And I was like, what do I do from here? You know what I mean? Like what is going to go like going to the penitentiary? What's that going to do for me? I'm just going to basically learn how to be a better criminal there. Right. Like obviously they have rehabilitation programs there, but they're, you know what I mean? Like the return out of that isn't great from what I heard. Uh, but then I just, I got, I sat down on the floor of the cell and I prayed for the first time. I didn't know what I was praying to. I didn't know. Um, I didn't know what I was praying about, but I just said, whatever's out there, like, I want to be a whole human being again. I want to be, I want to be, a brother i want to be a son i want to be a friend i want to be a part of life again right <laughs> um yeah sorry <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm glad you had that moment i mean that potentially could have saved you i'm sure you're going to get to what happened after that but yeah you know you just get to that breaking point in your life where what else can you do you know and i i feel like in times of trauma and times uh like that in your life I think that's the proper thing to do. You know, when you sort of like realize that it's it's something you can't solve on your own, when you start to finally ask for help, and that's a beautiful thing, regardless of, you know, religion or faith, you're asking for help. And that's the, that's the big, huge first step. So I'm, after what I've been hearing, this is great. It's nice to hear you got to that point. So yeah, continue on, please. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah. Um, so the, the next day I went to court, uh, I had the new lawyer and the prosecutor who we were, so at this point we were trying to get me bail. Um, and the day before uh, my, my, my previous lawyer, who's still technically my lawyer, but you can't work me on this case. He called, he sends me a fax. So the lawyers can send faxes to the jails. They say, Hey, call me. And he's like, okay, I talked to uh, one of the prosecutors and they hooked me up with a recovery house that would be willing to take you. And this could be, you know, a, a, a way to get out of this, right? I was like, 
at that point, I was like, I didn't want to get out of it. I wanted to, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, it's just, it's like a psychic change that I had to, to, that day. You know what I mean? It was like, it wasn't, I want to get out of this so I can go do others, like go back to what I was doing. And it's like, I want to be present again. You know what I mean? I want to, you want to make it right. Yeah, exactly. And go to court the next day. Uh, the acceptance letter comes in that morning. They told me for the recovery house and the prosecutor who was supposed to be there that day was sick. And there was another prosecutor that came to serve on the case and got assigned to the case. And I had actually been on bail with this guy before and I never fucked up, never once with this guy. And he looked at me, he looked at my lawyer, he looked at the judge and because it's basically up to the crown counsel, the prosecutor, if you get out or not, the judge can have a say on it, but generally they lean towards what the crown counsel is going to say. And uh, they're like, I don't, I don't see why uh, Mr. Hart uh, can't be released on recognizance uh, to go to recovery and give him a shot. You know what I mean? As soon as I heard this, I felt this like, I don't even know how to describe it. Just like this warm feeling come over me, like things were going to start to turn out for the better. And the judge agreed. Um, I got released the next day to a recovery house. Um, there was a point in time when I first got there. It's like, do I leave or do I go? This is surreal. This is a make it or break a moment right here. And I was sitting in the room that I was assigned alone. And uh, the monitor came down. He's like, hey, man, you want to come hang with us upstairs? And I was like, wait, you want to hang out with me? Because at this point in time, the only people that wanted to hang out with me were the people I was either selling drugs to, buying drugs from, or just people I knew on the street. And they didn't have uh, my best interests at heart. And so I couldn't really call them friends. They were, you know, acquaintances. And they're like, hey, man, uh, yeah, just like come, come hang out with us. We're about to have dinner. Uh, and I truly felt like for the first time in a very, very, very long time that people actually cared. You know what I mean? And, and wanted to hear, you know, who I was and get to know me for just to get to know me. You know what I mean? And uh, they, they, uh, that was, uh, so I, I, when I was in jail before I got released, I was only in jail for about two weeks. I got put on a uh, opiate uh, replacement therapy called Suboxone uh, and it worked really well. Um, when I, uh, Suboxone is a drug that uh, it's not like a, a traditional opiate replacements or stuff like that uh it's only what's called a partial opiate so it hits your opiate receptors but it only plateaus to a certain point and the type of suboxone i was taking actually has uh narcan inside the pill and so if i wanted to use i would get sick from using right away anyway and so it's a good thing i'm like okay cool i can go into this without thinking about relapsing without without thinking of what and i got nothing else to to lose and everything to gain at this point and so uh i went i stayed there had dinner and uh they were talking and I, the guy i was selling drugs with at the sro that i was at he eventually went to recovery too a couple uh, like a year before this and I, I had no idea where he went uh and then we go to the main house where the office is the next day so i could do my intake and he's there and he's the manager of the house and i'm like wait what so this guy who i've been selling drugs with for a couple of years uh he literally turned his life around right he was running the house uh you know he he had his freedom you know what i mean and 
I was cool. And it's like, okay, cool. So we're in this together. Sorry, my cat's being... Is your cat fucking up the room? I was going to say, get that that beast under control. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, Yeah. Uh, So we we started a a new friendship on, on, uh, on good terms. It wasn't, hey, we're selling drugs together. Uh, can you hold on to my rifles in case we get robbed? It was, hey, that's behind us now. Let us, you know, go into more, like, let, let's become better human beings, right? Let's, so let's what's the time this. frame on that again? What, what, when is this that this happened when you still? So, this is in uh, 2019. So this is, uh, okay. I, got, I was released uh, April, I was arrested April 15th, released April 30th. Okay. So nice. almost almost two years ago to the day, right? It's amazing um, as well. After you make that prayer, that you know the prosecutor changes, that that opportunity comes through him, that then you get to this place, that there's a previous connection there. All these things, as you say, you begin to feel like things are falling into place, and you find a place for yourself in this world for the first time. Yeah. Um, uh, at that point. Uh, it was a couple of weeks in. I started talking to my mom again. Uh, she, she, I hadn't talked to my mom in six years at that point. And, I, and, uh, and my dad, I had talked to all the time. My dad, I would actually come and visit me in jail. It was really cool. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit, that's cool. Um, uh, yeah, I started talking to my mom again. Uh, I started talking to my dad a lot more than I was just except for when I was like, whenever I was out of jail, I wouldn't talk to him, but I was in jail. I would talk to him. So he would answer my phone calls. Um, my brother didn't come around for a while, uh, but I, I definitely rekindled a lot of old uh, relationships that needed to be with my mom and my dad and a couple of friends that were always there that uh, I could always depend on. Uh, and they were, you know, true people to me for sure. Um so I, I got clean. Uh, Thirty days in, I became the assistant manager of the house. Uh, uh, I ended. Uh, I, com- I completed their first stage program. It's, it's cool actually, because they have like a graduation ceremony um, for uh, each each student or not student, but uh, uh, person that's in recovery there, right? And it's the completion of the first stage, and they give you a song. Uh, to to play for everybody else and they explain why you feel that way and actually had strength of the mind as my graduation oh nice that's awesome right um and everyone was rocking out it was cool it was really cool um so i finished there and then they sent me on to a second stage house um and uh a guy who i was in treatment with and this is where uh i really started to find purpose so i got I, I got into the second stage uh house um i got a job for a little while uh i had done my taxes too so i'd done 10 years of back taxes that i hadn't done in a long time uh and uh, i got these taxes back and this I, I actually had a guitar for a little bit uh while i was in addiction and i sold it to this one guy and i'm like hey can i buy that guitar back you still have it right He's like, yeah i'll sell it to you for what you bought it for right and it was actually this guitar right here that i never play anymore <laughs> um, uh, yeah uh, and I started like 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 just writing songs again and it's like it got me like when I, whenever those intrusive thoughts would come into my head and I just started like I just sit down and play my guitar for hours hours and hours and like the rust just started shaking off and it's just like oh this is really fun like I can get out of my head when I'm doing these things uh, and I ended up 
losing that job because it just uh and i got laid off um push forward a couple months uh i met my drummer nolan and i'm not doing a band club right now it's just like my no, dude it's journey. part of your story man it's yeah, a, yeah for sure of course um that's definitely not why i'm here uh, uh and nolan actually used to use with um it would be an amazing elaborate lead up to the plug if it was that's <laughs> <laughs> <Right? laughs> no, all you uh, share away man yeah uh, <laughs> um I, I I met Nolan in treatment together and he's like, yeah, man, I play drums. I'm like, cool. I'm like, let's jam sometime. He had an electric kit. We never ended up jamming up until like November of 2019. And the first day we got together and found a song that we liked that I wrote, I was like, this is it. This is, this is what I've been looking for for so fucking long. And it's just like, at that point, it's like all these things leading up to this was like, it was my journey up to that point. And it's like, hey, you can do literally anything you want to. You got clean off of opiates. I got off the Suboxone right away. So, and it's just like, you can do anything you want to. So I was like, hey, I'm going to start a band with this guy. Why not? Right. Uh, so, you know, we do all the things that, you know, forming a band happens. Right. Um and then we wrote a few songs and then the pandemic hit. it was uh i just started a, uh, my new job as an outreach worker so it's just coming up to march i was actually the day okay um i started my new job a uh, new position at the same company um two days later friday the 13th march 13th 2020 um and i'm sure jesse you're well aware of this you, your guys's tour got canceled uh everything got shut off our jam space got shut down. Uh, but the thing is, it's like where I work, because I work with vulnerable people in the downtown east side, uh, I was still working full time, right? And I didn't realize how mentally demanding my job was. And I was already starting to get stuck in my head about like my physical appearance. Because like when I got clean, I gained a lot of weight. Um, I don't have any teeth. Um, like at all, I have not one solid tooth in my head. And I was just like, nobody, like these intrusive thoughts starting to come into my head. And eventually up into, uh, leading up to late June, 2020, uh, I relapsed again. And, uh, the events leading up to that, it wasn't necessarily anything bad that had happened, but it was a boiling point. It was like, I just bought a new guitar head, uh, for, for the band, uh, well, not for me in the band, um, and uh, I put it through uh, a loudspeaker and I didn't use a speaker cable and it fried the speakers. And I didn't, I like, it was my first time having like a, a head that you plug into a cab. So I was like, oh, cool. I could just use these cables. No problem. And it fried. And I was worried. I just wrecked the thousand dollar head that I just bought. And all these anxieties started creeping up. And eventually it was just like, I don't want to feel like this anymore. And nothing is helping. So I delved into uh relapse uh it was almost two weeks i relapsed i haven't at this point i moved into my own place and i told my boss right away and my co-workers and they are the reason why i'm still here today uh along with all my friends that supported me in my journey and recovery so far and my friends and my parents and they lifted me back up you know what i mean and they're like hey do you want to take some time off and maybe go back to treatment for a bit i was like at this point, I'm like, I don't want to lose what I have. I, I could burn this all to the ground or I can 
try and pick myself back up. Right. So, and that's what I did. I took uh, three months off of work. I, um, I ended up going to treatment again for a month. Uh, I had to pay rent and it, it was different this time because at that point in time, back in 2019, when I started treatment, the government was paying for it, but this time around I was paying for it. And it wasn't just financially. I was paying for it physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. Right. Um, and I realized that my, my, my soul hadn't really been quite healed. And I don't know if it ever will be, but I wasn't looking at things that, uh, I just, I didn't see when I got clean and all the things that I had addressed in that time. And so I, I got up, I was like, okay, let's do this. I, I brought my guitar with me. I brought my amp. Um, I brought all my clothes. I like, let's do this for months. See how it goes. And it was, it was enlightening because it wasn't. They're, they're 12 step based and I was still in that mindset of 12 step, but they also had a lot of other stuff go with it too. And a lot of spiritual stuff that, that a lot of people within that treatment center were involved in with meditation. And so I got involved with that and I came home, I went back to work and here I am today. <laughs> wow. That's a hell of a story, my friend. <laughs> It's incredible. And just very quickly that I think there's something to be said for paying for something on your own dime, right? Or am I misreading that? Like, because oh, you're consciously sure. investing in yourself. And, and so there's more of a commitment to the process, right? Is that, was Definitely. that, do you think part of it? I think it, it was because it's like, I looked at it afterwards, after I came home and I was like, I spent my own money on this. You know what I mean? And it worked. And it wasn't that it was like a financial thing that I was worried about. No, but you're making that willful commitment, aren't you? And it's, yeah. it's, it's an act. Yeah, for sure. And it really, it, it changed my perspective on, on life again. And you know what I mean? And then those intrusive thoughts that got me to that point of relapsing, it's like, hey, uh, you don't have to think like this anymore. Because I had the knowledge I gained from all the time I was cleaning all the information I got when I relapsed. And I applied some of that to, to that time, this time around. And it's like, I know today, and this is for everybody. You know what I mean? You can feel this way too. If you're feeling shitty, if you're feeling bad, if you have intrusive thoughts in your head, anybody can come around. You know what I mean? Like I found out just in another psychic change that I know I'm worth it. I know I'm going to be okay. And shitty things are going to happen. But in the end, as long as you reach out for help, like I did, uh, everything will eventually be okay and it's just like that figuring that out finally and actually seeing it not just like thinking it and people saying these things but actually realizing it and feeling it it's like hey this is kind of cool and i just felt like, like again like it's weight being lifted off my shoulders he's chained and shackles just breaking and ever since I, I came back to work it's been like full bore all cylinders firing Oh, it's just yeah uh, it's 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 a it's a really good feeling to not have to worry about uh how you're going to get high the next day mm. like that that just that process alone and the brain power it takes to do that is so demanding and now that i'm able to apply that to life and you know being um, a, a team leader for of outreach workers um volunteering separate time beyond that on the downtown east side with a volunteer outreach organization being in the band all these things, I'm applying all that that power that I did to getting high and doing all those things. And it's worked out tenfold. And I highly I think, recommend it. 
you've got you've got the experience and i think you know people like yourself that have been through it and you've definitely been through it you oftentimes can be the best person to help others because of your experience and uh, you know you mentioned uh, briefly about you know just asking for help to to god or a higher power and i'm sure you've heard that in the in the step program as well um you know you are still here for a reason you know whatever mm -hmm. higher power you want to call that great spirit you know energy the universe there's a plan for you and you have an extraordinary story and your story could potentially save a lot of people from a lot of pain, a lot of relapsing. And truly um, I just really hope that, you know, you're able to be strong and push forward with this. Cause I really do feel you could help a lot of people with your story. Um, so dude, you're a survivor and you're here for a reason. You've got yeah. a purpose. And I hope you know that I can see it already. You definitely have purpose in this earth. I, I, I thank you. I, and that, that's the recurring theme for me is like, you know what I mean? Like I survived 150 plus overdoses. You know, yeah, what I, mean? I don't know anybody who <laughs> that's, that's like, do we need to call Guinness, the Guinness world book of records? No, there's definitely people I know that have overdosed more than I have. Wow. 100% down here. It's like, it's bad. Well, um, so, some, something's looking out for you, my friend. And I really do feel that um, this is your calling to help yeah. others because in helping others, you're going to help yourself too. You know, you're yeah. only going to sharpen your tools and be better equipped to deal with situations by helping others. Yeah. I find when you teach people, when you help people, you're strengthening yourself at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm going to fanboy for a little minute here. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> uh, and it's still related to everything. Um, uh, in October of last year, uh, I decided to get uh my first tattoo um and in doing that i was like what do i want to get done and i remember when i am broken Two first came out uh and it released and i heard it and it's like it was like me to the t you know what i mean and it's just like what i what it was where i was at i was i was thinking it was like three months clean or something like that and it's just like hey this song is really fucking cool and it means a lot to me so i got a tattoo Hey, <laughs> I, I am honored, my friend. And yeah, that yeah. song is definitely for people like yourself. That's why we did the video the way we did, too. You know, um, that's beautiful. I'm, I'm honored, honestly. That's yeah. beautiful. That's why that song was made for people like yourself, for people like all. I mean, everybody's broken in their own way. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, that song hits me hard, too, because it's for somebody I love very dearly, too. So I'm honored, my man. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's truly amazing that you could have just been another one of those tragic statistics, right? That people that lose their life to these, you know, these powers of addiction. Um, mm -hmm. And you've, you know, you've broken through to the other side. And I'm so inspired by you, man. Thank you. I appreciate it, guys. Uh, you know what? And what's really cool is like, you're right. The, the, my story uh can help people because a lot of the people that i work with are people that i used to sell drugs to or use with and like i i've been given the training uh through one of the housing uh i forget what it's called bc housing they've literally, literally given me the training of where i can take because i live in the downtown east side too i live like two blocks from my work um they've given me the training that i can literally take all my homies that are on the street do some paperwork them and house them within two weeks. Right. Wow. And it's, it's been, it's been, it's, it's, yeah, there's definitely a reason why I'm still here. Uh, and I think I found it, 
you know what I mean? Uh, really, You're on the front line, man. You're on the front yeah, line. And I guess with sure. this last year with COVID, all kinds of problems would have been thrown in the air and, you know, it must have hit that area that you're talking about hard. Yeah, um, it definitely has 100%. And it's, and on top of that too, it's like uh, ever since the pandemic hit uh, all the, all the SROs and all the companies around it uh, were given a provincial health mandate to not allow outside guests into the buildings. And then on top when that happened, the opioid pandemic decided, and it's still a pandemic at that point, but it decided to come in uh, what I call a second wave because uh, it got worse and worse. And I think in January was the highest amount of deaths by overdose in British Columbia in recorded history. It was like 170 people in January alone. It sounds like they need you there, man. Jesse was saying, you know, there's a reason why you're here. That's it right there is to help your community in this hour of need. And I love your jumper, man. Spiritual gangster. Right. This is actually a a friend of mine um, from Vancouver in the recovery community. This is her company and she's just gone with it. It's the same, same kind of story. Like she got clean and a couple of years later she started her own business uh, and she's thriving with it. You know what I mean? It's, it's really, it's, it's a cool thing. To that, see is that people. the name of the company? Spiritual Gangster? No, uh, the, the name of the company is, I don't know if you can see it. It's called Recovered. Okay, yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like Recovered, but in like a short form, right? And they're all, yeah, they're all about uh, recovering loud and proud, right? And they got, they got a bunch of other ones. They got another one. So it's like, it's like a spiritually fit. I was torn. I was like, I want to wear this one or do I want to wear my, I have a, hoodie that says hashtag fuck fentanyl and i was like ah, that's for this one it's cool i think you chose wisely that's a good one yeah. i like that one yeah listen sure. dude do you have a singer in your band i do uh a, fe- a female singer actually oh nice yeah she she's like five three and full of fire amazing well, awesome. yeah we we just spoke to a guy from your part of the world from vancouver so many similarities to your story i'm going to link you two up by email he's a musician as well he's a singer he's been through a lot of the same stuff man and uh, i think you two would benefit from just getting to know each other and connecting so for sure definitely. i'll link i'll link you up by email um and yeah we can hopefully bring i might even some... know him you never know yeah hey. <laughs> garrett <laughs> garrett keeping his name is do you know garrett no, keeping i have no, no. idea yeah, the story oh, that yeah. you told is very similar. It's it's interesting. And yeah, so th- first of all, thank you for coming on, man, and sharing your story. It's it's incredible. And yeah, let us know. Keep in touch with us. Uh, let us yeah. know your journey. And uh, maybe we can do a follow-up. And maybe, you know, when you when the two of you guys link up, maybe we can have the both on at some point in the future. Just for sure, to definitely. Continue to talk about Because I find that Vancouver has, has a lot of interesting drug stories because for one reason or another – it's just a hotspot for that kind of stuff. It is. Well, it's, it's a port city. It's uh, the southernmost city besides Vancouver Island in Canada. I'm pretty sure on the west coast. Hmm. And uh, yeah, it's like everything comes here from China. Yeah, there was Japan. always a spot on tour that you know you always knew you could find whatever. Now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of tours, uh, I, I really hope you guys reschedule soon, man. I was going to fly from Toronto or from Vancouver to Toronto to see you guys. And I know, obviously, pandemic's going. We don't know when it's going to start. I understand. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me good. too, man. Yeah, we'll see. Well, dude, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your story. And uh, yeah, I think you definitely have a, a calling. And I hope you continue to do well with that. Stay sober and, and keep fighting the good fight. For sure. 
Dude, is there anything you want to ask Jesse before we let you get out of here? Just to give you that um, chance if you do. Um, not really, man. Like I've seen a lot of your uh, interviews around, like with, uh, I think it was Metal Sucks or something like that, around mental health and stuff like that. And it really answered a lot of questions I had surrounding like how you wrote songs. And I, I have no questions. I'm just honored to be here and oh, to thanks, share. Man. Like you're, Jesse, you're a personal hero of mine, man. Uh, you know, your your time with Kill Switch Engage and Times of Grace uh, and the music you wrote within those periods uh, have grown on me and been a saving grace for me. And so all I really have to say is thank you. Oh, thank you, man. I'm honored, truly. Right Bradley, on. thank you so much for coming on the show, man. And do keep in touch and, and stay strong out there. And yeah, good luck to you, man, going forward. Um, wish you nothing but love, positivity and happiness in your life. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. All right, brother. Keep fighting Take the fight. Yourself. Yeah. Thank you, Bradley. That was awesome. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.